Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity in their early years to achieve great success. Our guest today is an actor, playwright and theatre director. Kwame Kweamar shot to fame as a paramedic in Casualty and was once voted the most popular man on television. But he's always combined popular culture with high art and also had an award-winning play put on at the National Theatre. He's now artistic director of The Young Vic, one of the most vibrant theatres in London. Having suffered appalling racism as a boy growing up in Southall in the 1960s, he sees drama as a way of exploring social issues. I'm using art to be a catalyst for debate, he once said. Kwame Kwayama. Thank you very much for joining us. We had hoped to interview you on the stage of The Young Vic, but unfortunately it's closed for lockdown. How is the theatre surviving during the pandemic? Um, I, I think we're surviving by um, by the thing, th- we, we often call it doctor theatre, that thing where you might feel really, really poorly, but one minute before stage time, you just get that second, third or fourth wind and you get on stage and you do it. And I think really that's what we're relying on. It, it, you know, theatres haven't been closed this long since Oliver Cromwell. And, um, and I, I think we're, we're, we're just trying to make sure we remember why we do what we do, which is to have people in a room commune around a, a, a subject that, that hopefully can catalyze joy or introspection. And, uh, and we're just continuing to, to, to plan on quicksand hoping and praying for the day when we can all gather again. Do you think there will be an outpouring of COVID-related writing at the end of it all? Are you planning some coronavirus plays? I hope not. (laughs) Um, I I think we've just lived through a trauma and a a bit like revenge, I think that trauma is best served at a distance. I, I think without a shadow of a doubt, however, there won't be a play, there won't be a bit of art. There won't be a bit of life that over the next five years hasn't been touched by the coronavirus. And so I think the kind of art that I'll be really interested in is, is the art where I have to find out and discover and work out how the virus has affected this narrative as opposed to being told about it. And it's interesting that you see culture as a form of social commentary rather than simply entertainment. Why is that so important to you? Um, I, I think theatre and, and, and art is our 21st century church. I think we go in there, as I, I think I've referenced before, we go in there, we congregate in order to commune around a subject. We, we listen to the sermon. Hopefully it's not a sermon when you go to the theatre. But, um, but we, we listen to the message and then, and then we apply that message to ourselves. And hopefully it allows us to look at the world and look at ourselves in a different fashion. And I think that, that that's more than 
something that sits within the narrow bandwidth of entertainment. It must be entertaining, but it's deeper than that. It is reflection. It is, it is contemplation. It is, it is elevation when we get it right. I think, I think it was a, a Norwegian, or no, maybe even a Hungarian theatrical academic who once says that when you get theater right, there is a moment when an angel crosses the stage. And, uh, and, and so for me, that, that's more than just entertainment. We want to look at where that comes from in you, from your childhood. And you were actually called Ian Roberts when you were born and you changed your name and you were 23. What made you decide to do that? Um, without, without getting too political about it, and I, 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 tend to, I, I tend to want to see it actually more within, the, within the, what it did for me rather than the political act of it. And, and the truth of the matter is that the overwhelming majority of Africans were, were brought to the Caribbean and of course the New World to be enslaved. And the, in 1834, in the Caribbean's uh, perspective, uh, you know, we were given the name of our slave masters and, um, and I, I found that to be illegitimate. I found that I did not wish to carry the name of someone who had enslaved someone in my family. And, and, and so it felt really important, but actually more than looking backwards, it was what gift I wanted to give to my children. I wanted my children to not to carry a sense of not knowing where they came from and therefore that their eyes could be on the North Star of what is tomorrow and what is their contribution to making the world a better place, albeit incrementally. And so really I wanted to tackle notions of inferiority by carrying the name of, of someone who stripped our culture from us in order to be mules that worked the land or the gardens, the external gardens of Europe. And you once said that it was watching Roots that made you realise when you were sort of 10 or 11, just what your cultural heritage was, because there'd been nothing really about it and you hadn't been taught about it at school. Why was it Roots that really made you feel that you needed to do something about your name? Because for the first time, actually, um, I, as someone of Caribbean heritage, was able to see my African heritage in front of me. Our history books at the time, and I still have a history book from my school days, ancient as it, as it now is, but um, there was one paragraph about slavery and then the rest was about William Wilberforce. And we had been taught, our parents had been taught that we were not Africans and to look down on Africa. And those in the motherland in Africa had been taught to look down on the slave children, quote unquote. So really we had been educated to not see that link. And Roots really articulated that link in, in Technicolor. And, uh, and it touched me profoundly. Why did you choose the name Kwame Kweamar? Um, well, I did a genealogical study and, and took our family back to the slave fort on my maternal side that my great, great grandfather had come from. And then I went to Ghana and what I didn't want to do was to kind of choose a name from a book. I wanted to be on the soil and, and, and see how I was responded to. And actually, the Ghanaians on the whole throughout my travel, when they got there, they spoke to me in one of two languages, Ga or Fanti. And because they could see those features in my face. And, um, and so really, eventually, when I got back home, I chose a family name that was from the Ga tribe. Ama, Kwe Ama, born to find the way. And, and Kwame was the day I was born on a Saturday. And you were working as an actor at the time. What did your colleagues think when you suddenly told them that you were going to be called something different? 
I was actually working at the old Vic at the time. I, and I, I'd started the job as Ian. And then I took two weeks off or something um, in order to go to Ghana. And then I came back and I said, so I will now be Kwame. And of course I did it all by default, et cetera. And I would remember that, you know, actors get called onto stage and I would hear the company manager or the, the stage manager saying, Mr. And I could hear the, I felt sorry for them in a way. And that people would be, it's really hard also to have met someone and been introduced to someone with one name and then having to adapt immediately. And so a lot of people found it difficult. Some people found it difficult because it, it looked like I was making a comment on other people who were from the Caribbean who had not changed their name and I was not, I did it for myself. For my mother's generation, it felt like a rejection and some would be like, listen, you were born Ian and I'm gonna call you Ian forever. And I think the only one that I really cared about was my mother's reaction. What did she say? I, I think, again, there is, a, there is an innate rejection that you cannot run or hide from when your child changes their name. My mother is, is the love of my life, my absolute role model in nearly all things. And I was really fortunate that I had said to her at 12, Mum, I'm going to do a genealogical study and I'm going to change our name. I was really fortunate that I could actually go back to that moment and I could say, Mum, this is why I did it. And remember, you were there when the idea landed. You understand that this is something that is a continuation of what you have done. You traveled 4,000 miles from the Caribbean to here to give me a first world life. And I want to do that for my children. I want to give them the thing that allows them to not have to look back or sit in the insecurity of cultural oblivion, but actually know who they are and know where they have come from. Um, what was the atmosphere like in your family home when you were growing up? Magnificent. <laughs> um, I, I say that, you know, I, my youngest child is 15. And, uh, and is, is being a, a 15-year-old, right? As I know I was. And, and I keep going back to that time. I'm going, I know, that, I know that my mother and father had to discipline me a lot. And I know that I was a handful. And, and you know, and I, I remember, remember being, you know, like making them angry and being angry and going, I don't want to live here anymore. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be, um, you know, too rose-colored. But actually, I had a brilliant childhood in my home. My home was warm, was filled with energy, was filled with the stories that immigrants bring to a new land. On a Sunday, you know, my front room would be filled with, with people from my mother's church. On a Saturday night, it would be filled with my father's friends drinking rum. <laughs> you know, it, it was filled with the contradictions of existence. I remember my mother on a Wednesday um, holding classes a few of her friends who left school before 16 would sit and would study for their O-level English. I mean, magnificent when I think about it. These people were in their 40s and my mother got her O-level English when she was in her late 40s. And so the home itself was filled with people coming in, being political. I remember my father chasing some of my cousins out of the house when Grenada was invaded by America, saying, oh my God, you're gonna bring the police into the house. We don't want this politics, but yet me being fascinated by this activism. I mean, it was a wonderful, active, warm home filled with love and activism. And your mum sounds like a most extraordinary character and driving force. Rachel and I are just in awe of everything that she seems to have done. Can you describe her to us? Yeah. Do you know, 
I've never been asked that question, actually. You know, I, I speak about my mother often. And um, I, I would describe her physically as probably about five foot six. And the mother that I remember, as opposed to the mother that I've seen in photographs, had hit middle age spread. Um, I mean, she was an orphan. And her way of dealing with that trauma was to have as many children and young people in her home as humanly possible. And she was tenacious. And, you know, I, I often use an, an example that whereas my father was a, was a wonderful man and very much a man of his times, but he would place his hat where his hand could reach. My mother would stand miles away and throw her hat at the hook. And guess what? If it didn't land, she would just find another hat. <sighs> and, and she just, she raised her children in such a fashion that, that we understood, I think, and speak to my, for myself rather than probably my, my brothers and sisters, but, but we understood that the world outside of our door was cold and that we had to be 10 times better than our white peer to get half as far. But yet, though outside may be chilly and filled with hate often, that we would be replenished by her love. Where do you think that absolutely astonishing sense of aspiration came from in her? I, I think it was born of her being an orphan. My mother would tell a story sometimes of sitting under a coconut tree at one time and, and the coconut falling and just missing her and, and her saying, you know, look, even you have a family, even you know where you have come from and I don't know where, I don't know who I belong to. And I think that being raised in those middle-class families, those families where they would listen to the BBC on the radio or have a piano in the front room, that the children would, would all go on to universities in Europe, that I think she wanted that for her children. She saw the benefits of that and was determined that when she brought children into the world, they would be equipped with the best tools to fashion a way forward. And she worked night and day to send you to a private stage school. Did you have a huge sense of responsibility then to make the most of it and to do as well as you possibly could? I did. But, you know, it's really easy at my grand age to look back and go, yes, I, you know, there was no pressure at all and, and it was wonderful. Of course there was pressure. And my mother <laughs> would emotionally coerce me to make sure that I understood that she was sacrificing. I don't mean in a negative way, but she would remind us of, her having to work two or three jobs to send her children to fee-paying schools and the sacrifice that she's making. And I think I heard it and I never wanted to bring shame upon her name. When other kids might you know, go into the local store to shoplift, I think the thing that stopped me doing it was the notion that the police would have to bring me home to my parents, or in particular to my mother, and not just the disciplining that would happen, but the sense of shame that it would bring upon my mother. It was a big, it was a big motivator. Did you feel at all embarrassed or different to the other children in the street? Because you must have been one of the only ones who went to a private school. I think that's a brilliant question. Again, something that I don't think I, I've ever been asked. And yeah, I did. You know, I, I could tell that, you know, some of my friends, my local friends, that I could hear what their parents were saying about my mother and whether she thought she thought that her kids were, were too good to mix with everybody else. And 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 that you know would travel through them to me, and sometimes in a physical way, we would we would have fights. And yeah, I never felt different, as in better, 
I certainly felt alien. And I think in a way, if I'm to be honest, it, 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 there, were, there were life lessons. You know, my friends at school, I had an amazing posse of aspirational peers at school. And so in a kind of way, being alienated from my environment in Southall was kind of rewarded by having, a, you know, a great social circle around me at school. And she also sent you off to the Salvation Army and you had to walk down the street in your uniform banging the drum. Oh, that was hard. Was that hard? Was it humiliating or were you proud to be part of it? Because it's always difficult being that different as a child. (laughs) I'm going to be frank, I was traumatised. As as you say, I can remember on a Sunday walking down Southall High Street with the brass band playing the bass drum and seeing my local friends sat on the wall pointing at me and laughing at me (laughs) and me with a hat that was too big for my head probably there's probably a metaphor in that as well but um you know kind of just feeling total embarrassment I mean come on I'm 14 and I'm 15 and I'm singing onward Christian soldiers (laughs) walking down the high street Uh, yeah I mean it was it was hard and then when you when your mum was 35 she had a stroke how old were you oh I I think I was about 13 and did you worry that the stress of all the work might have made her ill it must have been an incredibly difficult time for the family it was and it would it would be wrong of me to say that I thought that that I thought about her workload in that context but my mother was really good she she had I think probably knowing that she was not feeling brilliant, she had delegated, you know, the kind of housework to to all of the children. So I would cook on the weekends for the family. I I would do the shopping when she got home at 7am in the morning. I would go to the market and do the supermarket shopping. And then my brother would cook on a Sunday. And then, you know, I I think I would do the washing on a Wednesday. And so in in a kind of way, a lot of the kind of, of the housework had been delegated before she fell ill. I think that the trauma was really for my baby sister at the time, Anne-Marie, who um, I was tasked with um, not only taking her to school, but doing her hair. Um, And I mean, I butchered that. Poor girl would probably never let anyone, male, ever get anywhere close to her hair again. But I I, I think what we were aware of was that I I didn't know how she was going to make it through. There is something frightening about seeing your mother week upon week, who you're used to seeing being terribly active, to just bedridden. And also she had a private doctor, a black private doctor. And in those days, in those days, one didn't necessarily see many doctors. You would in the Caribbean, but but you didn't hear. And he would come to the house and he would prescribe medication for my mother that I would have to get on the bus and go into New Oxford Street in order to get some of those medications. Some was homeopathic, others were just straight. And, 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 and I remember that I felt I was contributing to her getting better by doing it, but it was really boring having to travel to Oxford Street from deep West London in order to help my mother get better. And you were the eldest boy, was that an extra burden? Do you feel it made you grow up and take responsibility for yourself much younger than you otherwise would? Yes. I, mean, I, I think the firstborn of the migrant classes, I think there was an extra responsibility you, you have to lead. And you're, you're also the conduit between the new world and the old world. As I got older, I, I, I saw that I was a repository, 
that I was that I, I was living the agonies that my parents were going through while negotiating my own position in a world that saw me as an alien. So yes, being the first child had responsibilities and boring responsibilities, as I said, going out and doing shopping and doing the washing and taking my sister to dancing and my brother to his tuition classes. And, and I did worry. I remember looking at my white peers and going, God, you don't have to do any of the work that I have to do and feeling anger and, and frustration. I look back in retrospect, though, I look back and it gave me equipment that, that maybe they did not have. And um, what was your father like? Was he a role model for you? Or was he a more remote character? Your mother's obviously such a powerful force in the family. Yeah, I, I don't know that you can have two big personalities in a family. And, a, and, I, and my mother, as you say, was a huge, huge presence and positive presence in our lives. And I describe my father as, as a man of his times. He was an Edwardian man. The West Indian man at that time was taught to keep their emotions close to their chest and to have a, a kind of slightly distant relationship with their children. That changed as he got older, but certainly the father of my youth was a man that I saw him going to work every day at 8 a.m. and coming back at 8 p.m. You know, I have really fond memories of Friday treats where he would come back with fish and chips and what we, we couldn't wait for that and, and our whites lemonade. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I, my mother was without doubt my role model, but my father taught me many lessons quietly that as I get older, I'm actually understanding it with greater clarity. And you've described and talked about the naked racism that you experienced growing up. How did that actually manifest itself? It manifests itself in knowing that, that every day my seven-mile journey to school was a journey where I could be physically assaulted, spat upon, punched or stabbed. White youth culture at the time defined itself through the realms of the skinheads, and which meant that everywhere was a danger. Every direction. I didn't go to my aunt's house, who lived two miles away in Hayes, because it was a, a strong national front area and, and I feared for my life. Um, and if I did go, I, you know, when I went, I would go in the daytime, certainly never at night. It was very, very, very hard. And in, in a way, it created some philosophies that, that have helped me throughout life and others that, that probably are a bit of a tax. For instance, I was stopped all of the time as it, when I was driving from about the age of 17. And back then, the police cars didn't have like a sign on the, on, the, on the top or something that said stop. In order to stop you, they would flash their lights and then you would pull over. Even to this day, if I'm driving and the car behind me goes over a speed bump, for instance, and the lights dip, I flip into that mode of I'm about to be stopped by the police. It permeated. If I'm walking down the street and I hear four footsteps quickly together, in succession, I will immediately pivot, turn around, look behind me while running at the same time. Because such was my formative years that if you heard boop, 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 I was just like, I'm about to be attacked. I'm about to be stabbed. And I would run. And so I, 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 would, I would say that those are manifestations of the deep trauma of living in 1970s and 1980s. Britain or London specifically. It's a kind of fight or flight mechanism, isn't it? But it also sounds as if the authority figures in your life, the police and even teachers, were sometimes part of the problem. Totally and utterly. 
I, I, I think it, it would be churlish of me not to speak of the teacher in particular, Miss Jane Latuzo, who would be a wonderful counterbalance to some of the, the racism that I faced at school. But yes, on the whole, there was no safe harbor. At school, we would be told that we belonged to a quote unquote inferior race. I had a teacher once say to me, I'll never be able to speak English properly because there's something about the black mouth that, that, that can't get there, that, that, can't, that doesn't work properly, that won't allow that. Incredible. The police, I really clearly, I remember, after the Southall riots, walking down the street and, and it was, you know, simmering with smoke from the night before and a police officer just walking behind me and kicking me in my back as a 12-year-old and saying, you know, come and just give me, give me a reason to arrest you. You know, everywhere we looked, there was not safety. There was aggression. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest today, the Artistic Director of The Young Vic, Kwame Kwe Amar. We'll be back after this. To enjoy more incredible stories from incredible people, why not get a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times today with one month for free? Head online and search thetimes.co.uk forward slash past imperfect. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, Kwame Kwe Amar. And was it from your peers as well as from authority figures? Was it other children at school that also were racist? Yeah, I mean, again, we, we had a really great posse around us at school, as I, I think I may have said. And there was safety in that posse. But again, we are all victims of our time. And, and so actually white supremacy would make itself manifest in terms of our aesthetic choices. So I, for instance, would be called rubber lips or big nose. And that permeated both black and white, white more than black, but, but it permeated right into us that one's dark skinned, so therefore not good looking. I can literally remember the date almost when I moved from ugly to handsome. And I'm like 18 years old when society went, oh no, black men, and Tyson Beckford, I think was the big model at the time. And there was a real seismic shift in us going, oh, oh no, you're not 
ugly. Those are not rubber lips. Those are full lips. And they are not big noses. They are African noses. And there was a whole culture shift around 1989. And that really made a fundamental difference to uh, notions of self-worth. Did you fight back as a boy or did you feel you had to take it? It sounds so pervasive. I think my teachers would say (laughs) that I fought back a lot. Not necessarily physically, but certainly verbally. I found myself often wanting to debate racism, often wanting to debate what we would now call structural inequality, but I did not have the language for it then. I found myself relatively angry about it, um, certainly as I got closer to 16. But one of the beautiful things was once I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I think I was about 18, 19, and I saw that what he was facing in the 1940s in America was similar to what I was facing in the 1980s in England. I then clocked what we now call structural inequality. And then I was able to go, oh, we are not alone. And somehow it took all of the anger out of me. And I learned to hate the sin and not the sinner. But it got much more personal when the police came and kicked down the door of your home and ransacked the place. That must have made you feel deeply angry and also terrified in a way that the people who are meant to be protecting you are actually the ones that are coming after you. I I think, if I'm to be fair, very few people at that point looked upon the police as being a force for protection. And so the disappointment and the anger wasn't probably as deep as it might have been for someone in the white community who might look upon the police or looked upon the police then as being a protective force. For us, we knew that the police were aggressive, to say the least, in their negotiations with us. And so actually the anger actually came when once, and the police often um, kicked open our door um, and, and would always find nothing because there wasn't anything happening like that in my home. But I think at one point when the police pushed open the front door, when my brother Terry, I think he'd have been about 13, opened it and he slammed him against the wall and, and it popped Terry's lips So Terry was eating and they ran upstairs into my father's bedroom. I mean, it's all of the bedrooms actually, but went to my father's bedroom where my father always kept his wardrobe locked. And I remember then that the rage in me was immense. And what did your parents do? Did they feel as angry or did you feel you had to be angry for them almost, that they were too willing to take it? I think, and it's not until you become an immigrant, you understand how insecure being an immigrant really is. I didn't understand it until I went to America. There are things that, as a non-citizen, you just, you do not feel entitled to say. You do not have the equipment to negotiate with. And so I think that it was really easy for me to look at my parents and go, why do you take it? Why, why do you not hate these people? And it's really easy and childish, actually, to look back and say they should have been angrier or they should have, because actually the truth is they were negotiating a cold, cold land as best they could. And so actually it was incumbent upon me as the new generation, as the generation born in this country, to articulate my anger in any which way that I could. So I certainly do not judge them. I understand that they were negotiating a space in the way that anybody would, who landed in an alien land and were being excluded and treated in the way that they and their children were. And your mum told you that she wanted you to be a lawyer. 
she wanted you to be able to stand up really to the bullies why do you think you wanted to fight them another way? Why did you not want to go into the law? I still have an infatuation with the law and certainly with, with, with my lawyer friends because I, you know, I always go that you are what my mother wanted me to be. <laughs> do you know, I'm, in, in truth, I always primarily wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be in entertainment. That I realised and knew was a gift that I had been given. And my mother although she really wanted me to be a lawyer, also supported our gifts, that whichever gifts we had. So for instance, I went to a, to a stage school, my younger sister went to a stage school, my younger brother went to a straight private school because actually he was really good at math and English and really good at academics and state wasn't his thing. And so she tailored his education for him. I think, although I really liked the law, and although I still really love the law, that entertainment was my primary vehicle. Can you remember the first time you went to the theatre and the first time you really fell in love with theatre? The first time I, I was bitten by theatre, I, I went to the Royal Shakespeare Company, I think I would have been about 14 at the time, and I was taken to accompany my sister, who was at college, and, and they were going on a day trip to Stratford. And I saw an iconic, I didn't know that then, of course, adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew, starring Jonathan Price directed by Michael Bagdanov. I know that now, of course, I didn't know that then. But why it was so remarkable is that I was sat in the audience and about one minute before showtime, someone in the audience jumped up and started shouting and screaming. And then they started running towards the stage and the ushers ran to them and tried to start having a fight, struggling to keep them. And I was just like this 40-year-old frightened going, oh my God, sat next to the lecturer, William Hobson, and going, oh my God, we've come all this way and I've had to do all the whole boring William Shakespeare's city and town and house. And I really came for the show and it's not going to happen. And the guy <laughs> on the stage and he pulled the curtain down and as he pulled the curtain down there was a big motorbike on stage revving and it was the beginning of the show oh fantastic <laughs> that's great you're hooked and was your mother really proud when you became a successful actor and that you were on casualty and everyone knew you and I've even got friends who called their children Finley after your character <laughs> that's that's hilarious um yeah you know what's so interesting about that is yes is the short answer the slightly longer answer is that you know before I got into casualty I was doing okay right I was kind of doing big Hollywood movies with tiny roles but I was like shooting for six months in Italy or six months in Thailand and working with superstars and you know again tiny roles but but I was I, I felt I was doing okay but I would always come home and my aunties would all look at me kind of like slightly at the you know with their heads slightly lent to the left going are you okay, darling? <laughs> are you working? Are you are you resting? How's it going, darling? And you know, with with that look, and I would always be like, I want to go. Look, I've just finished doing this movie with Harvey Cartel. I've just finished doing this movie with Gina Davis, and it would mean nothing to them. Like, One day, darling, you're going to make it. One day, and then I got casualty. And my aunties were aesthetic. My mother, they were over the mood. They were like, you've made it. You've made it. You're on television. <laughs> and so actually that made my mother very proud and made me very proud that my mother and my aunties could all felt that, that finally I had succeeded. And what do they think though when you then moved into writing and directing? Were they then all horrified? Why did, <laughs> <laughs> why would, why did you feel you had to do that? Why were you driven to do that? Uh, actually, some were horrified. And, and you know, <laughs> I still, I, I go, uh, I, I live in North London and I drive to Tottenham and I, I go to get my West Indian food. 
and, and you know, I lived in America for a while. And so when I came back, I'd go to that store and they would still say, we haven't seen you on TV often, these. how's it going? And um, I'd always make sure that I, wouldn't, I wasn't wearing like dirty trainers or beat up clothes on that day in case they thought that I was really down on my luck. But I, I think we are taught as a culture on the whole to really celebrate those who are in front of camera and not really understand those who are behind the camera. So I, I think it took a long time for many people outside of the business to understand that for me, that was evolution. As an actor, I always waited for the roles that came that said the things that I wanted it to say. So when I started writing, I was writing not to give myself another part, but rather than just sitting there waiting, but going, I, I, I will write the work that's not there. I will do the thing that I'm complaining about. And when I became a director, it was because I was complaining a lot about, oh, why am I having to wait on white directors to direct my plays? That, you know, let me learn to do it then. And so then, and then when I became an artistic director, it was because I was complaining about artistic directors programming plays that I was like, why would they do that? And so do you know what? Let me become a, an artistic director so I can do it differently. And so each time my evolution has been born out of a sense of, I want to be the thing that I don't see out there. I then learned how hard it is to do the thing that I was complaining about. And my mother would often say, you know, don't, 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 don't criticize people until you walked in their moccasins. And um, it wasn't until I became an artistic director that I realized to have a play, a new play put on a stage is an act of God. It's, it's not about your writing. Your writing is one part of that. But there are so many other variables that on the whole, um, from the outside, the opaqueness of the sector means that you just don't understand it. So yes, the shorter answer is in popular culture, people went, why would you leave being on TV every Saturday to writing? And my answer is because I feel that that's what I'm here to do. And do you think that your experience as a child gave you that real purpose to your writing and performing and directing that probably wouldn't have been there otherwise? Was that the real drive, do you think? Without a shadow of a doubt. I think if you were to read my first play, A Bitter Herb, it is nothing but mining my past and trying to project something into the future that would help elevate others, actually, who had had that experience. And actually, really interestingly, I have that kind of weird mind that once I've written something, it's kind of gone, it's kind of dead to me, and I really don't even remember the plotting. And so I went to see a production at RADA of A Bitter Herb, maybe 16 years after I'd written it, maybe about four years ago, and I couldn't remember the play. And I was really afraid. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go and see my immature writing self. It's going to be really embarrassing. And in fact, what I saw was my menopausal mother I didn't realize I was remembering my mother through that period of her life. I saw a braver, stronger Kwame. Sorry to speak about myself in the third person. I saw a writer who was unafraid to say what they thought. Why? Because I carried a righteous rage in life that found itself in my writing. And it changed my life. Actually, I went home. I went back to Baltimore that day and I resigned. When I got back, I went, I've got to be, I've got to be an artist again. I've got, I've got to go back and not be the person who calls compromise pragmatism, but actually the person who's, who's unafraid to write the, the rage, the anger and the love that, that's in his heart. Do you still feel that righteous rage? And I, I wonder whether the racism has got better or worse since you were young. 
it would be churlish to, to, to say that the racism is exactly the same as it was when I was young. It, it's a different world. It's a warmer world. It is light years away from what it was when I was growing up, but it is light years away from what it should be. Our understanding of structural inequality, of anti-Black racism, is only now really finding its language in the mouths of our white peers and colleagues in a way that it had done before, but it has a revolutionary zeal at the moment. And it's penetrating in a very deep and I think sustained fashion. So I would say, of course, racism has moved from the naked aggressive racism of my youth to a subtler, more insidious manifestation. But that needs to be challenged with the energy that the young are bringing to it and that some of us who are older who have negotiated various variants of racism with hopefully with some of the wisdom that, that we can that we can provide. How much of a tipping point do you think the Black Lives Matter protests were? I, I mean I, I, I think it was a great catalyst. I'm fortunate and unfortunate to have been born in interesting times uh, as we know that the Chinese um, call that a curse. But I've lived through four cycles of civic uprisings in relation to race. And each time we go through it, we make a quantum leap forward. And then over the years, we realise how far we have yet to go. Do you think that things like toppling the statues have been a diversion or are they really important symbols of change? I think history is fluid. And the irony of the Colston statue bubbling as it hit the water and, and went deeper and deeper in. Do I think that we need to pull down every stat statue? Hell no. Do I think we need catalysts for debates on what we hold dear, on what images we, what messages we think we want to place above the population? Statues stand taller than us. They look down on us. They tell us who we should be, what values we hold dear. And I think the values that we hold dear today are different to the values that we hold, we held dear 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And our environment, our physical environments should reflect that. You did though accept an OBE, the Order of the British Empire. Did you think about turning that down? I wonder whether you feel that the name is now an anachronism. I, I think that every person who is black or part of the global majority who is born in Britain and is offered something like that, they enter into that debate. They enter into that debate with themselves, they enter into that debate with their family, uh, and certainly with their peers, and they are judged for it. And I made the decision, as contradictory as it may seem on the, on the surface, to accept it. But I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to accept all of the criticism that comes with that. When your first play opened at the National in 2003, they gave you 50 tickets to invite whoever you wanted. Was that to try and create a more diverse audience? Because the theatres still are very white, aren't they? It was the most revolutionary act that's ever happened in my career. And my relationship with audiences was absolutely rooted in Nick Starr and Nick Heitner saying, we think that this play will bomb if there aren't people in the audience that recognize the culture from which it was born. And it was absolute fact. They laughed and I would see white audience members turn and go, oh, 
that's that's funny and that's understandable you know when i go to jamaica there are some topical things that i just that just go over my head the audience around me are laughing at it and i just don't get it because i'm not as steeped in that culture as they are and actually seeing them enjoying themselves changes my perception of how good or bad or or, or on the money that work is. So absolutely, they gave me those tickets to make sure that there were people from the culture in the audience. And I have tried to do that with every job that I've, I've done. And I would say that theatre on the whole is perceived as belonging to the white middle classes. I, I'm really interested in an inclusive way of curating our audiences. That means I want those white middle class audiences. I don't want them to go anywhere, but I also want our theatres to look like the areas that they are situated in. In a city like London, where over 42% are black or part of the global majority, to not have a theatre in terms of its staff and its audience that tries to reflect that, there's an error in that. And so um, absolutely, we have to make sure that our theatre audiences reflect the cities that we live in. How do you change it? You, you, you program work, you, you, you let people know that they are welcome. You let people know that just because that work is targeted at a certain demographic, it doesn't mean that it's not for you. Sometimes there were arguments that black audiences would only, black and brown audiences would only come to the theater if plays were there for them and, uh, or specifically for them. And, uh, and I think we have to send messages that that's not so, it's no longer so, but that actually it's for everyone that every piece of work is for everyone, that we are part of an interlocking community, not that we are separate tribes that can only look at each other's reflections. And I think that that is a charge that I would lay at the feet of, of, of some white audiences that we, they have been tribal in the past. They, they have seen a poster with a, with a black actor on it and go, okay, subconsciously, well, maybe that's not for me. Maybe that's for another community. And I think we have to challenge both black and white communities and brown communities to see beyond the initial tribalism. And I would say that actually as a black audience member, I'm primed to teach many audiences about that. Because if I historically were only to find myself interested in narratives that had a black face in them or on them or around them, historically it would mean I would probably have seen very few films, very little television, and only watched the news when Trevor McDonald was on it. <laughs> Mm. And you've now got four children of your own. Is their life very different from yours as a boy? And do you want any of them to become a lawyer? <laughs> what a brilliant question. I want my children to be whatever the hell they want to be. And do I think their life is different from mine? Or well, they will say probably not. Um, and I have to be really aware of it, that their notion of discrimination, their notion of what they face when they walk down the street, their relationship with the police, with the school system, with the judiciary, that actually is disproportionate to their white peers. So actually in their eyes, they're probably living exactly the same life that I lived. I think it is not as hard as it was for us, just like it was better for my generation than it was for my parents. But my subjectivity cannot cancel out theirs. Do you still feel like an outsider or do you think you've now joined the establishment or have you joined it but want to shake it up? I think that's a very brilliant question. And I think that um, I, I was on the board of the National Theatre once and I remember something was said and I was speaking again, actually, to Nick Starr, who was then the executive director of the National. And I remember saying to Nick, ah, oh, the establishment just frustrate me. And he was like, 
just so you know, you're on the board of the National Theatre. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that taught me a really big lesson. And the lesson is, I am still in my heart, someone who believes that the status quo needs to be shaken up, even though I may be part of it. And so my job is to join hands with those who are throwing stones at the window from the outside and do as much as I can on the inside so that they don't have to demonstrate. Looking back at yourself at the age of 23 when you changed your name, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Um, I think it's really hard, you know, because actually I, 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 if I were to speak to the 23-year-old, I think I would say, keep the faith. Life isn't always fair, even though you may feel isolated at this point. That even though you can't see the way to the, to the clean air at the top of the mountain, I would whisper in, in his ear, just keep the faith. Do you think there is a sense of urgency or anger that overcoming adversity gives you, that drives you on, and in fact is incredibly important for your creativity? There is a bandwidth tax to being angry. There is a physical tax to being hurt. There is a soul tax on having to motivate yourself time and time again against the odds. And so I think that I would much rather my children and my grandchildren have their art be born of naked creativity rather than having to suck on the breast of anger or discrimination to motivate their art. And I, and I think I'm seeing that. I'm seeing what I would call postmodern blackness all around me in terms of art. People who are just creating because they need to create, not creating out of the need to comment or change the environment. Just the art itself will do the work for them. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do not romanticize poverty or anger or discrimination as fuel for, for artistic creation. It doesn't need to be. Kwame Kweyama, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Thank you so much for having me, man. You took me deep. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and the Artistic Director of the Young Vic Theatre, Kwame Kwe Amar. This is a Wireless Studios production produced by Ben Mitchell. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 